Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Derek Peter, a musician I've been in touch with since about 2013, with the release of his album Raj. And I've enjoyed seeing Derek's music modulate between different modes of expression. He pulls upon some of the most immediate facets of music, pop, basically, and also some of the most ambiguous and difficult to decipher, all in one fell swoop. And sometimes he rides the faders so that one is more prominent than another. His most recent record, which comes out on August 2nd, is called Avia, and it's a threnody to his late grandmother, who, whose voice he recorded a lot since 2010. He had many conversations with her, and she passed in March last year. And this album features many of those conversations that Derek recorded, and also many instruments that circulate around the edges or flit around at the front like butterflies. I think what first came to me when I was listening to Avia is the fact that it's a immediately very beautiful record. The textures feel beautiful inherently and that there's no computation involved in recognizing that. But a lot of the melodic decisions that Derek makes have an ambiguity that reminds me of when it's very difficult to express something. You know, when you come to say a sentence that doesn't quite have a shape yet, and you make those sounds like, ah, and, you know, those kind of shapeless moments of articulated thought in progress. A lot of the melodies on Avia feel like that, sort of caught between several potential states of being and settling in this sort of quivering suspenseful potential state of enunciation it's really beautiful i've been loving digging into this record and i hope you do too i mean go check it out like i say it'll be out on march 2nd and i hope you enjoy this conversation with derek as well we had a really lovely time talking about three important records of his it was great to actually have a a conversation over voice this time i've only ever spoken to derek via email up until this point. And if you want to check out more about Derek's music, go to DerekPeter.com. That's Derek, D-E-R-E-K. Peter is P-I-O-T-R. Or you can go to DerekPeter.Bandcamp.com as well. And obviously you can go to AttentionMagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for links to Derek's music and more information on his picks. Okay. Without any further delay, here's Derek Peter on Crucial Listening. Hello, Derek. 
welcome to Crucial Listening. Oh, hi, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all. So, you've brought three important records for this podcast as per. Also, you're about to release a new record yourself called Avia. <laughs> and reading the press material, this is clearly a very personal work to yourself. And we've just been speaking about that prior to recording. But could you talk me through the process of starting this record? It's like the very first moments of this record starting to become a thing yes um i met uh, an interesting young man last year called ed williams who grew up in the uk lives in france now and he invited me to do a podcast with him last year telepathically <laughs> because we were just sort of generally talking and at some point he said oh yeah you should come on my podcast and i said yeah that sounds great i'm always up for stuff like that and then about five minutes into that, he said, yeah, it's a podcast about loss. And I was like, oh, how did you know that I just lost my grandmother? And this had started for him. It's called Echo Chamber because he'd lost his father and he'd done some work thinking about that. And then we had a conversation. And um, one of the stories I was really excited to tell on his podcast that I will also share here was the curious inception of the first track I'd worked on properly for Avia. Um, when my grandmother was dying, I wrote a piece called Five Voicemails. But when she passed, the first thing I'd written with the record in mind was called The Storm. And I didn't actually have to press record to work on that track. I, I think I started it a couple of weeks after she'd passed away. Um, my friend had played Glass Marimba, and he's like, if you YouTube glass marimba he'd built this thing it's like one of the only ones in the world i think he's the number two youtube hit for glass marimba wow. <laughs> and he'd played one of my pieces forest floor from a, a few years ago on this thing and i'd written forest floor for harp but i'd end up using woodwinds for the record and i'd gotten my friend to play it on viol de gamba a couple of years ago and i was really excited by that so when he was offering to play some glass marimba stuff for me i said why don't we try forest floor it sounded really good on the viol de gamba maybe it'll sound excellent on glass marimba and it actually did not it sounded really kind of lame oh <laughs> just wasn't telling me much so i cut that up and i made this kind of tricky 13 16ths or something or 11 16ths little loop out of just shards of the glass marimba recording and i also taken the vocal track from pure which was on grunt and that's the like you 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 in the track the storm mm. kind of this haze of myself and a recording of my grandmother and then i'd also written this coda that's kind of a late motif throughout the the record and I, I had my friend play it on saxophone and then i had some field recordings so for the first track i sort of did it on a like a microscope slide, like it was kind of surgical, like I didn't record anything new for this first track, because I think I was afraid to, for the first time, kind of have a, um, an active or a destructive process to making music. Like, yeah. normally I record things in my, my voice and I destroy them. It's destructive editing. Um, and for this first thing, it was like totally done in a test tube. It was like totally sutured together really kind of removed myself from the process in a way. And my voice isn't really on this record in a discernible way. I think that's actually the, the like, you, 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 is like the, the most me that really punches through, except for the title track. Yeah. Um, yeah, like my voice is elsewhere on the record, like on The Bird Room and on 
three voicemails, which is a redo of the five voicemails track, but it's like a drone or a haze. It's not really present as a voice because I wanted it to be about my grandmother's stories. So I'd done that track in April, and like I said, it was kind of a weird process with these recordings. Everyone had sent me and emailed me and stuff. And then I kind of couldn't do too much actively after that, and I started writing music, like um, scores, and I thought about this coda that I'd written as more of a theme rather than an ending coda. It became more of a theme that I really gravitated towards. And then I went to a church in December to record organ and violin, and um, that's sort of where the record fell into place. And I think I'd done a lot of sort of slow, careful writing and considering, and I sort of sat there for eight months, you know, between April and December, kind of not doing too much. And then once I had all the church recordings, which is sort of what I wanted the record sort of fell into place in the space of like three and a half months. Like I was able to just finish what I'd been writing and not think too much about the recording. Um, there are a couple of exceptions to that. Like I'd recorded, I'd gone to a nursing home and they had this wonderfully out of tune piano. And so I recorded a couple of notes on the piano and that's the main carriage of um, Temple of the Fortress of Light. It's just really manipulated piano recordings. Mm. And then this Ed Williams person that I had met that same night, he'd done an improv of bowed guitar, bowed acoustic guitar. It sounded really spectral and unnerving. And so I, I asked him for his, he'd made like a Zoom recording of his performance. And so that basically turned into um, a glimmer in an otherwise dark field. And so there were a couple of, exceptions to the bulk of the church recordings being the album, but um, it was sort of situations that I didn't expect to be in that surprised me that I turned into um, tracks on the album. But it was it was really about not using my voice so much. It was really about acoustic instruments being at the forefront. And then later to Temple, I added some harp chords. I'd just written them out roughly on software, and then I sent them to my friend in Chicago and he sent me back harp recordings and that wound up on the track because I wanted some harp on the record. It was a little bit different than how I normally work. Um, it was a little more monastic. And another thing you mentioned and I've seen you mention before is about the absence of beats, which sounds like, again, something like the fact that you didn't want your voice on there on the recording that you provided for my radio show, you're like, I didn't want there to be beats. Uh, what is it about beats or the lack thereof, I guess, that's that was important for the purposes of Avia? Well, Grunt didn't have that many beats on it either, even though it was a noise record. It was yeah. more about pulsing atmosphere and less about an actual beat. I mean, there are beats on the record because there are some repetitive tracks but like mostly it's just shards of atmosphere um i'm i i definitely wrote a lot of kind of pop music early in my career if you would like spin the wheel it would be pop basically out of any other category <laughs> with bahar and with tempa tempat and then some tracks on raj like they're very rhythmic there's a vocal performance happening in there and i think I was chasing a very different thing earlier in my career than I'm chasing now. And I may return to writing songs, but it really, it's not how I'm thinking anymore. 
like I think you know I've begun the follow-up to Avia already because I finished the record in March and it's like another drone record like there's no songs there's no singing I mean there's vocal material but it's been stretched out and edited and it's not a there's no song in there um grunt had one track on there that was a song called pure and the title track of avia is sort of a vocal lament that i did with my friend kara we both sing just the word avia over this melody that i it's like one word over this melody that i'd written (sighs) but that's not even that's more like a gregorian chant or something or, or a magical it's not even a pop song so i think generally speaking my work is moving away from this kind of pop idea one because i don't think i'm very good at it two (laughs) two because um i i wrote forest people pop which was like the zenith of my (laughs) trying to write pop music yeah and it has verses and choruses and love songs on auto-tune and nsync moments and beyonce moments (laughs) and missy elliott moments and timbaland moments and all these kind of references sophie moments and whatever and i was like really on fire about this i was like i'm doing a pop record and it's going to reference people you know like i was consciously referencing other producers for the first time which i'd never done before i was like this is a sophie nod and this is a missy nod and whatever <laughs> and i got through the studio uh process of making that record and then it kind of became time to like tour it and I didn't have any desire to sing these songs on stage at all. Um, I did a couple of them. um, I I really only did like this one track called time lapse live. And I did it um, in London at the 22 RPM festival, kind of at the behest of bit phalanx because they put the record out and I was touring for them and they were like, please do some of your record. And I was a little (laughs) bit like, I want to just make some noise. And so I think I did that one song and then the rest of the set was basically atmospheric noise. And um, I did that song live in a studio with a friend of mine and it's like eight minutes long and it's mostly like a noise freak out. And then I sing for about 30 seconds. And so my point is like, I really had no interest in wanting to sing these songs and I don't even really use words in my live performances anymore at all. Um, It's, it's, you know, I don't know how long this is going to last, but I guess my point is I'm already in a point where I don't want to do the pop thing. And I think when I toured Grunt, there was like a lot of, um, I was really in the extreme of having it be a huge noise soup and being really extreme. And I had like radial on one of my laptops and that has like, you know, as many channels as you want, kind of flipping out and like doing stuff, (laughs) even like looping stuff in Audacity, looping stuff in Ableton, having radial going, and then maybe also playing some of my back catalog on shuffle on iTunes, like just the most layers you could possibly have. Um, And it was just like cathartic to, you know, crank the monitors, turn the mic down a little bit and just kind of scream. And like, that was more satisfying to me than this very balanced, like, gotta know the words, gotta be on the beat live thing that I've done in the past. And so, um, yeah, I'm not, um, I'm never going to be FK Twigs. Like I'm never going to give a, a, a moving pop performance like on stage, which I think, you know, was sort of an earlier model for what I thought I wanted to do with music when I was younger. And I think that ultimately, you know, I don't want to come out from behind my laptop and, and like, you know, move my hips and, and 
wear a caftan and have the spotlight on me. Like, it's just not like I'll wear the caftan, but you won't see it because I'll be behind the laptop. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just in a, I'm in a place now where it's a little bit more uh, settled. Like I kind of, I've made peace with the fact that I don't need to do these kind of acrobatic live performances uh, that are um, like, yeah. I don't know how, how to better say that. I think I, I think I said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think so. Um, I mean, on that strand as well, I'm curious, seeing as you mentioned about the nature of grunt being this incredibly cathartic, noisy thing, do you think that that made an impression on the decisions that you made for Avia, given that from my own experiences, there's a lot of space at points on Avia, which really contrast to the work that you did on grunt so was there something about perhaps expelling a lot of energy on grunt that permitted avia to be what it is yeah i think that always kind of happens like with drono it was all a drone record and i didn't have any beats except for maybe like wash which was kind of this repetitive loop so it wasn't even really about beat crafting right and so then Mm. the reaction was forced people pop which was like polyrhythms and codas that are different beats and really beat crafting really heavily and but that also was kind of a pretty pop record with songs. And so I tore that all down with grunt and I was like, no more words. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's funny cause it pendulums every time, but it sort of pendulums in a different way. Every time, you know, you have, you have Drono, which is no beats. And then you have forest people pop, which is beats, but you also have forest people pop, which is vocal and kind of like love songs. And then you have grunt, which has rhythm, but is the absence of songs. Mm-hmm. And then, but with grunt you also have this brutality and claustrophobia and so the opposite of that is sort of obvious you know it it does kind of pendulum back and forth but i think it's a different attribute each time that i'm reacting against um you know so for instance in a way avia is very narrative and it's many little pieces so now this new record i'm sort of thinking about is like two monolithic pieces that are like 25 minutes long each and you know, it's like, I think every time I, I react against um, what I did before, but but on a different level. In fact, one other question I had on Avia before we moved to your records is, I know that you recorded your grandmother a lot, and that you also refer to yourself as a digital archivist as well. How <laughs> immediate was it to realize the recordings that you wanted to use on Avia of your conversations with your grandmother? Was it obvious when you heard these recordings or did it take some time to come to the selection? Most of them I could tell uh, right away. There wasn't a lot of choosing. Like some of them she's telling like some private story or some joke that like wouldn't make sense on a record like it's funny but it just like no one would understand what you know like it was in the room and i knew what she was talking about before or some were incomplete recordings so the ones that stood out for instance uh i don't even know if listeners are will understand this but the second track uh the sun the beginning of that track is is the tail end of her telling this story about how when she was a child um her parents and her friend's parents were also friends like the the parents were friends and then she had her friend and when those parents would come over to her house she would leave a note in the lining of their fur coat 
like hidden in the in the seam wow. for her friend. And when the parents would go home, the friend would retrieve that note and write her one back. And so they would send messages back and forth through their parents' coats, um, which is like the weirdest fucking thing. Like I don't even know how she <laughs> managed to figure that out. It's just like an amazing, like who does that? You yeah. know. So like that's something I wanted to preserve. But I also think that that one takes a little bit of explanation or really the first recording on the record. She'd gone to visit her sister in the nursing home and they were two years apart. Her sister was only two years older than her, but she'd let her hair go white and she was like in a wheelchair and she was not very outgoing. She was quiet. She didn't go outside a lot. And then by contrast, my grandmother, who was like 95 at that point, had a boyfriend in her his seventies and she was like dancing all night, you know, like go to events and her hair was dyed. And so she came to visit her sister and the nurse said, Oh, Helen, is this your daughter? So that was the first thing that you hear on the record is my grandma on the phone laughing about how someone mistook her sister for her daughter, you know, her (laughs) as the daughter rather than the sister, because she looked so much younger and acted so much younger. So some of them were maybe charming to me, but they require a little bit of explanation. Um, but that's okay too. I think that some mystery is fine. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 ultimately a very personal project, and I think really the response that I get certainly my my shows are always you know pretty well received. Like I don't ever get booed or whatever. You know, people are generally positive and come up to me and say nice things and not mean things mm-hmm. with grunt or whatever. But with this project, it's like I'll finish a show with recordings of my grandmother and people will come up and share something very personal about how their grandmother is in hospice or how they lost their mom to cancer or whatever it is. You know, it's really on another level opening people up to share their experiences with loss. And I think the experience is more important than the particulars. Like I think ultimately however fascinating my grandmother's stories are, they're just kind of a vehicle, like the preservation of her that act is so much more important than what actually is being recorded Mm -hmm. because it invites people to remember that they have people they wanted to preserve or that they have people that is no, that are no longer with them. And there's, there's moments that, you know, I, I I think that it's much more about the experience rather than my actual, it's more about my attempt to celebrate this idea that people won't always be around. And ultimately, you know, I'm on the sleeve instead of her. I think a little bit because my family might be a little uncomfortable if she was part of this like big promotional, you know, whatever, like she's everywhere. Yeah. Um, but also because it's more about my my experience of moving through loss. You know, people were kind of like, well, why isn't she on the cover? Isn't this about her and her stories? And it is a little bit, but I think it's also I'm trying to serve as a as a as a, a way to get to that point where you can remember these things. And so I'm sort of being this <laughs> clumsily being the spokesman for loss or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird little, um, formula to try and get right. Right. Cause I, it is, I do want to remember her stories and I do want to remember these rich eccentrics that she used to work for and, you know, watching the construction on the road with her or whatever. But I think it's, it's about something a little bit bigger than that at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, people want to check out Arvia online. Where's the best place for them to be headed, Derek? Uh, D-E-R-E-K-P-I-O-T-R dot com slash Avia. Nice. Um, I've, I've begun slowly assembling an album page. Um, the essay that I wrote with uh, Dr. Wog is up right now in full, and I will probably move that to a PDF link at some point. But I'm going to, you know, hopefully I will 
um, put the the first single up for pre-order in the middle of the month, and um, which, gosh, this podcast may already be out by then. Um, I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I mean, just visiting my website will give you an up-to-date reflection of, of what's going on with the project. Great. So let's go to your important records now, and one question I like to ask, my guests is how you thought about the term important when producing your list of records so was there any particular way that you interpreted or contemplated the term important to produce the my, my, three records my top three has always been uh in order you know number <laughs> one being medulla two is head slash bow and three is actor so when you said you know three important records like i've already like i've already thought this out <laughs> hence um, why i got an email back so quickly huh yeah, I mean, these, these these records have absolutely defined the way I think about sound. And, you know, just to kick off part of why I think I love them all so much. Um, first of all, I, I find them to be electronic music records, but from a very non-electronic perspective, which is sort of the kind of music I love the most. Like, Actor is very processed and programmed, but it's ultimately kind of an indie folk record. Mm. Um you know, there there was a producer, uh, you know, everyone says St. Vincent and John Congleton and St. Vincent and John Congleton. Um, but there was a producer called Scott Solter who had done a lot of the tracking uh, to tape of the woodwinds that Annie had um, composed. And they recorded a bunch of stuff to tape. And then I think she took those recordings to John and they were later processed. So the result is something that's very process heavy, but the, the origin is very acoustic. And then obviously with Medulla, uh, you get cut up voices, and those are treated in a million different ways. And then head slash bow is also processed voices, but also just really weird field recordings. Some left very raw, some, you know, you process the hell out of them. But it's mostly um, acoustic recordings. It's not a lot of synthesizers and stuff. But the other thing that I think is so interesting is um, Medulla was written at home, while Bjork was like breastfeeding because she just had a baby the year before. And um, Actor was written when uh, St. Vincent lived in New York City and she was getting noise complaints from her neighbors uh, in Brooklyn so from playing guitar. So she would just like score things out on her laptop in GarageBand, the woodwind arrangements. Wow. And then uh, AGF has told me that Head Slash Bow was mostly written in her flat in Berlin when... Um, she started doing her solo stuff uh, away from Laub, away from kind of a band, away from a studio perspective. She was like, I need my own sound. And so she she dove into her laptop. And uh, because I came of age with the internet and I spent a lot of time online in my room as a kid, um, I think the fact that all of these records sort of their genesis is this bedroom experience uh, really speaks to me. Because it's they're, they're not bedroom records at the end of the day, but there is this sense of laptop intimacy with all of them that's amazing i'd never have uh, seen the genesis of that saint vincent record in particular as a laptop record until you laid that out that's fascinating right because it doesn't read as a bedroom record it reads no. as kind of a, a studio indie record like a grizzly bear thing but it, yeah it started as her and her laptop because she was like god damn it i'm getting noise complaints i guess i'll <laughs> you know uh she was really exhausted from touring marry me i think she said and so she was in new york city like trying to write her follow-up. And um, I think the first thing she did was in a hotel room. She wrote the uh, clarinet part to Marrow on GarageBand, like just by, you know, like A key, F key, A key, F key, you know. <laughs> and I think some of the um, GarageBand woodwind voices actually ended up combined with 
woodwind recordings like i think save me from what i want it's half recorded and then half the garage band like woodwind synth wow i mean we're, yeah we're i guess we're talking about the same vincent one do you want to start with that as your first important record to to talk about if we're rolling, i or? mean there's no particular order that we need to go in um cool yeah i i've definitely um because these are all records i care about i've definitely gone out of my way to like find every interview about their genesis figure out the way in which they were produced track down the collaborators that helped make it happen um you know by funny coincidence scott Salter, the guy that did the woodwind recordings for actor is actually doing mixes um for the first single for my uh avia release wow Um, and he's been a friend of mine for five or six years now um but we initially connected because i was asking him about some of the the processes behind the beginnings of actor and he was kind enough to answer my questions and uh he came to a couple of my gigs in the city and so that's something that's been very cool do you have any thoughts on where that reflex comes from to if you really enjoy a record to probe into every aspect of its creation and to to find out more about it i would hope that's an inclination most musicians have you know i mean i mean annie herself has said that the first madonna record really inspired her a lot and so she spent a whole summer recently rewriting every song but putting them in minor key like she would just redo all the midi and all the synths but it was all in minor um you know i think that that's you know and she would read like interviews with niall rogers or whatever um i think it's i think it's a natural inclination for for most people i would hope (laughs) Uh, you'd be surprised i mean some people come on this podcast and all they know about the music is the music uh because certainly my instinct as well is to want to find out more and read a biography of there is one and uh right so why is it why is this record in particular uh important through you to you you kind of laid out a kind of general framework for the, the records generally are important but what what about this one in particular um you know i was 18 when i discovered actor and i'd had my first boyfriend right around the time that i started listening to it um and my friend in Philadelphia has an interesting theory because, um, as as we know, music and sex both light up the same neurological headquarters in the brain. Uh, they release the same like pleasure response. It's the same region of the brain, sex and music. And my friend in Philadelphia said that music stops sounding exciting and important to you the year that you lose your virginity. Wow! Like anything that comes out after that you're kind of like, oh, that must be what the kids are listening to. And it's totally (laughs) true, because I must say I'm very disappointed in all three of these ladies, actually. Uh, They all did records in 2011 after they'd done, you know, Actor and I guess Volta at that point, and then whatever Anche was doing at that point. Um, And all these 2011 records from from Bjork, AGF, and St. Vincent, like it was um, Biophilia, Strange Mercy, and Beat Noddle. And I was like, oh, these are all so terrible. What happened? <laughs> um, so I think there must be something to that theory. But I, uh, after, after just speaks to me of that summer of 2009 and having kind of my first real solid boyfriend. And then that was also the peak of sort of trading music and files over AIM with my friend Kara, who's, who's one of my best friends. And we would send like Ethel Merman, Perform- disco performances and Bollywood and like clips from Ubu Web and we were just like always on AIM that summer like like building our vocabulary of like what we were listening to and kind of finding our identity as artists and so um, actor really 
reminds me of that that time period. But I also think it's such a wonderfully composed record for for a rock album. And I think I had this idea that St. Vincent would become this kind of... Um, I just had a vision of her, like, amplifying that, like having a whole orchestra behind her with, like, bone-snapping Stravinsky arrangements, like, and her with, you know, her curly hair and a tunic. And instead she was like, no, I'm going to look like Gene Simmons and sound like David Bowie. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you went you went the other direction. Um, yeah. She amplified her guitar playing instead of her arranging. Um, she actually recently gave an interview... Um, breaking down her key songs. And of course, it was like all mass seduction songs. Um, but then somebody was like, um, what's the best arrangement you've ever done? And it turned out it was the bed on actor that wow. she was proudest of having written. Because it is, it's a great song. And it's so Stravinsky in a way. Um, yeah, I just, I just find that writing on that record to be elevated above uh, anything else she's done. Yeah, this is the f first time I've heard this record, and I have to confess, so I've worked my way backwards. So I first heard, I can't remember what the record was called, the one with her on the throne on it. Uh, oh, just her self-titled. Yes, that's it, yes. And then Mass Seduction, and now this one, and I had no idea that this was the place that she came from. I actually kind of assumed that she'd basically come from a, a more pared-back version of what she was already doing so this was quite alarming <laughs> yeah i mean she just the lyrics are more interesting on actor and you know the delivery is sweeter she's she's got much more melisma to her voice it's not this yeah she's really changed as an artist i think out of the three she's the one i'm the most disappointed in um having changed um because i thought actor had so much promise uh in a, in a particular way and she just chose to go in a different direction when you think about those experiences, so you mentioned as well that you were, I think, 18, you said, when you listened to this, what did those listening experiences look like when you were 18? Was it on the headphones? Where, where were oh, you? Yeah. What were you doing? <laughs> yeah, I totally, like, um, a lot of the listening I did as a child and as a young person reflects the way these records were all conceived, you know, like in a bedroom, on headphones, on a laptop, <laughs> kind of this, you know... Um, and that's the way I started making my first music, too, was, like, alone in my bedroom, you know, like most young people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I'm not really, like, a put the CD in the car and roll the windows down person. You know, I'm more like a put the CD in the car alone, keep the windows up and sing really loudly person. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't put, like, I wouldn't put this record on at a house party, for instance. Like, you know, I would put on probably, like, Major Lazer or something. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't usually put, like, things that are important to me in situations that aren't <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i mean is that part to to do with kind of protecting that experience for yourself or? i think it's just a fear that people wouldn't it wouldn't translate to a more a wider setting um or a looser setting you know people generally want music that's a little more like two-dimensional at a party mm. like major laser or like i don't know um what can we say? Um, disclosure, something. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, they don't want like 3D music that you need every detail and every nuance and headphones because it's like the energy's not there for that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I always get accused of sucking the soul out of parties because my idea of a party anthem is everyone else's funeral dirge, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have um, a track on Actor which is your favorite? 
Um, probably Laughing with a Mouth of Blood. Mm. I think it's just the prettiest, like the best melody maybe. And it's also, it's the most compact in a way, but it also, it, it just feels the most successful to me, I think. Yeah, the strings on that are stunning on that one. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, again, <laughs> come back to the fact you, you discovered it when you were 18, but I mean, do you, do you recall how it came in your direction, the record? Yeah, I do actually. Um, I had gone to my local record store, which... Ten years ago, they were writing newspaper articles on this record store like, in the digital age, this is the last CD store in the area, and it's still around. I remember that newspaper article from 2009. You know, people were, like, bewildered that this CD store was surviving in the digital age of 2009, and so, like, they're still around ten years later. I don't know how they do it. Wow. Um, Maybe they play the stocks. I don't know. Um, But I'd gone in, you know, as I always did. Um... And actor was in the new releases rack, like on the front counter. And the cover, which sadly I realized is a ripoff of David Byrne's Look Into the Eyeball. It's like a total ripoff. Oh. Um, <laughs> if you Google that, you'd see. But, um, you know, it's a very stunning picture of her. And it was very alien looking because her, her pupils are white. Her pupils are totally white. And it's a very uncomfortably close picture of her face, right? Like, it's just, yeah. it's just a little bit ethereal. And I remember thinking, who is that? You know, and I asked the owner, I was like, what is this record? It just, it, what the heck? And he was like, <laughs> oh, I think you'd love that. Did you hear Marry Me? And I said, no, I didn't. And he was like, oh, well, I think we have a used copy. So I got Marry Me used for like six bucks. And then I bought Actor. And um, it's funny because we can transition over to Medulla in a second because Medulla, I found that in a similar way. I was much, much younger, but I remember I was at like the Barber's or something and I opened like People magazine or something. And there was like a 16th page ad or a 32nd page ad, like a really postage stamp sized ad for Medulla. And I was like, what is that album cover? (laughs) Like, I was like, that's so interesting um it's it makes me think about the way people choose to communicate their message like to the world once the work is over like you know what what message are you sending and and i think both times it worked right because i was totally hooked do you mean in in reference to the album cover like as in what you put forward facing out exactly yeah because both of these i it came about because i like the sleeve a lot you know and i think that unfortunately sometimes that's what happens, right? You, you know, you're, you, you, the artist communicates a certain thing intentionally mm. on the outside, and it sort of leads you to the inside. Do you still buy CDs at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, so glad. <laughs> I mean, that record store is still open, you know. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I maybe don't go there as much as I did when I was 17, but, uh, you know, I definitely visit there. Um, Amazon, yeah, I, I I believe in CDs. I have a CD Walkman, actually. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. Um, and yeah, I'm like I'm like that old man with a tin cup in my little burlap tent, thinking there's gonna be a comeback. I promise. <laughs> Just like holding out for the CD revolution. Oh, you and me, Derek. Um, <laughs> and do you still have those experiences that you refer to? with just being struck by an album cover and being like, I'm going to take a punt on this. Yeah. Yes. Um, I can't remember. Is it the future heads? Okay. Is the band, they did a record called rant and it's got a very graphic cover as in graphic art, not like gory. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of looks like the, the font they've chosen kind of looks like a 50s party record. And it turns out that that's an acapella record. And it's it's not incredible. Like, it's not my favorite music, but it's very interesting. Um, it's a little bit medulla. It's a little bit barbershop. Um, it's kind of a delight. And they, of course, do a cover of acapella by Calice, which is, you know, <laughs> how could you not? Um, but, like, yeah, there, there was an interesting little record that I was like, oh, this sleeve is really telling me something you know better go see and and i was right so it it still happens a little bit So let's go to your second record now. So it sounds like it's Björk with Medulla. So tell me about why this particular record is important to you. Um, well, I had um, seen the sleeve in the little magazine advert and Borders was a, a store. It was like a chain of stores and they closed a few years ago, but it was like a book music cafe. Yeah, we thing. had Borders. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> um and so they they had this thing where you could scan the barcode at the listening station and it would play clips of the music. Mm. And I was 13 because it had just come out. And I remember scanning Medulla at the listening station and like Pleasure is All Mine came on. And I'd been in choirs since I was a kid and my parents had a couple of pop albums and, you know, I was like always singing and I would like buy movie soundtracks that I like, you know, Disney films as a young kid. And I liked music, but I'd never heard music that had sounded that clear and correct. And like, this is what it's supposed to be. And it completely changed my life. Like, I remember like listening to that album on the ride home with my parents, like ancestors came on and my mom was like, Oh, okay. You know, but it was like, you know, definitely there was, there was stuff that I didn't quite understand yet. Cause I was so young, but I remember so many of the songs like really, really solved what music was supposed to be at that age for me. And I'm, you know, like definitely started doing some really bad pastiche of medulla, like on my own, like with a bad radio shack, mic cutting loops of my voice up, you know, like mangling pop songs, doing this really kind of choppy cut and paste things. Um, and medulla definitely showed me what was possible because I was always singing as a kid. And so I think I always wanted to use my voice, but I thought, oh, maybe I need like to also learn an instrument or I'm going to have to get better at playing piano or, um, and, and this record was kind of like, nah, that's all you need. <laughs> yeah. That's a perfect record to discover at that point. Wow. And I can tell you that I'm, I've met Birk several times in Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Um, and one of the last times I saw her, I, I was either drunk enough or I was comfy enough or I was bold enough because I'd met her enough to give her one of my cassette tapes. Oh, wow. So at the end of the night at, at this party, we were like dancing with each other and she like gave me a high five because I liked her mashup that she played on the DJ floor or whatever. She high fives like a soccer mom, by the way. She like basically <laughs> hit my wrist. Um, very sweet lady. And I was like, uh, you know, it was like the end of the night and I was kind of like, do you have a way to play cassettes? And she was like, mm-hmm. 
And I was like, okay, I might have something for you in a minute. And I ran to my backpack and I got this cassette of Bahar and I gave it to her. And she turned around and she said, okay, I'm going to leave now, but the champagne is just there. <laughs> and she gave me a practically full <laughs> bottle of Dom Perignon and a hug and oh left. And I was like in tears in the Uber on the way home. <laughs> She's a very interesting uh, lady. How did um, you end up there with Björk having a dance? I mean, how did you end up running into it? She's just in Brooklyn all the time. Right. <laughs> wow. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, a lot of my friends that, like, still live there, because I was living there for a while, they see her all the time. I I went to this non-Nafi showcase, like, non and Nafi did a joint show, and she was at that. You know, she she, she hangs around, but she, you know, is is very warm very chill, very normal, I think. She's a mom. I don't think that she's, you know, she's just kind of like, you know, she reminds me of the rich eccentrics of like the 40s. You have money, give someone some champagne, you know, like have a nice time. <laughs> like life is meant for, you know, like niceness, I yes. guess. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. She's th- So that, you know, has definitely been a highlight. I bet, yeah. Did you? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, there's. I guess there's multiple ways of going about it. But did you tell her about your experiences with Medulla at all at any point? No, no. <laughs> I think I remember. Uh, I complimented her on uh, the track "Quicksand" because she'd played a mashup of Pakistani vocals and like some chords track or something like heavy beats and melismatic vocals and i was like yeah that mashup reminds me of quicksand and it's rare to hear melismatic vocals with such heavy beats and that feels like a success to me and she kind of didn't say much i don't think she's really good talking about herself i think she'd rather talk about morton feldman or snare sounds (laughs) or something um so you know fair enough yeah absolutely um with Medulla, I mean, is there, again, is there a, a particular track that stands out to you and connects with you most? Um, Mouth's Cradle, maybe, is, like, the coolest, like, combination of kind of the cut-paste thing, and then you've got the choir, mm. and you've got Tagak, and you've got the beatboxing. Yes. I kind of feel like she went out of her way to do, like, okay, this song is only programmed, like, Desired Constellation, or, like, this song is just me and Tagak, or this song is just me and a choir. And I don't feel like she really combined everything, except maybe on that track. Right. And yeah, maybe yeah. Pleasure is All Mine. But I don't... I feel like the the record is a bit of an exercise in, like, what are the combos that I can have. So... And then if you... She did, she did an interview about Mouth's... Well, about Medulla, and she says Mouth's Cradle is a little bit Justin Timberlake and a little bit Stockhausen. And I realized what she meant <laughs> is she basically, like, referenced the entire rhythm track to Cry Me a River by Justin Timberlake. Oh, it's wow. the same thing. Because <laughs> that came out around the same time she was working on that record, and it's the same rhythm. Um, actually, if you if you really want to stick this in the radio show, I made a mashup of the acapella of Mouth's Cradle and the instrumental of... Crimea River? What we're, we're, yes, at this point in the show, we'll play a snippet of that. Cradle Me a River, me. I think I called it. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. For me, always me when nothing else and everyone have life can tell that ghost is brighter. Sure me and you can use 
I mean, you've mentioned the fact that you've met her, but have you seen her play live? Yeah, um, I consciously decided to skip Cornucopia because I think she's become something else. Right. Um, but I've seen every tour otherwise, and I saw her give a talk at Pitchfork's Inside Out thing a couple years ago. I think it was late. 2017 and then of course i go to her dj sets which is how i usually meet her she dj's these little bars in brooklyn you find out like the day of someone texts you like oh my god she's gonna be at saint vitus and you run over there Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i mean she's she's incredible it's it's weird because i definitely think medulla was like very foundational for me and i rode volta and then i kind of stopped listening to her so heavily and got excited about other things and grew out of that. And then when I met her for the first time in 2010, was it? I think it was 2010. It, it like re, I re fell in love with her and I was like, Oh, right. This person, this, this, you know, and, and her work is really great, but you know, she's the kind of person like Radiohead or, or something where you can get really hung up and, you know, she has a really culty rabid fan following and I can see why, but um, I'm very careful like, I don't really play her when I DJ, and I don't really talk about her too much. Because um, I think a lot of people that try and emulate her, like Patrick Wolf, for instance, it gets a little bit sad. It gets a little bit, like, there's more to life than Bjork's music. Right. <laughs> I, is, is that? Do you mean that in the sense that her music will find its way to people who need to hear it regardless? Because she's Yeah, Bjork. but I think that it's just like, I don't need to constantly reference her like even patrick wolf has worked with um oh what are those photographers um warren Dupree's and nick thornton jones he did a whole photo shoot you know and it's like right. that's those are people that she's worked with and i even lady gaga has worn like you know like similar alexander or the same alexander mcqueen thing and then worked with Inez and Vinud, which is like kind of bjork's go-to photographers you know it's like i think it's hard to resist because her work is so strong and so beautiful Mm. and and so comprehensive everyone wants a piece of that pie sure you know i even kind of did that with reaching out to scott solter and working with him because i love actors so much it's like i get the impulse but you know try i try and yeah i try and keep moving i guess Let's go to your final record now then, Derek. Uh, if you could tell me the name of it and why it's important to you as well. Head Slash Bow is a record by AGF. And um, when I started putting my first experiments on Last FM, which, you know, it's sort of like, if I'd started this in the 80s, it would be on tape in a shoebox somewhere. But it's like, I did it digitally. And so I put some things on Last FM and they were like, you know, glitchy experiments with my voice and maybe like two or three layers and then 
Last.fm's algorithm suggested several artists like Alva Noto, I think, and like this girl in Canada doing similar things in a bedroom called Jom. Um, it was just like her and her laptop, and she made some amazing stuff, but they also recommended AGF as a similar artist to my artist page. And so I checked all of these people's work out, you know, because I was like, hmm, they think I'm similar. Well, let's see. And I downloaded Head Slash Bow, like from Soulseek, like I just kind of spun the wheel and grabbed a record, any record of AGFs. So I was like, all right, let's see. And Head Slash Bow is the first thing she did solo, and it's kind of different from the rest of her work. She kind of became much more polished as she went on and and she thinks about reverb in a much different way and she thinks about mixing in a much different way now but head slash bow it's so warm and it's so fierce and it's so tactile and Mm. it's so dimensional and it's so unique i don't often hear music that sounds like this i mean you have hotel parallel by finesse and God, I don't even know what else sounds like this. I mean, there might be like a pole record that sounds like this, but it's it's rare that music has this kind of brown noise roar to it while still being ambient. And of course, the use of vocals is like totally mesmerizing. And the mm. filter that she was using at that time, um, she'd gotten from Stefan Mathieu. Uh, I think it was called Undirected. Stefan actually just mastered Avia and he mastered Grunt. So he's oh, a good friend amazing. of mine at this point. Um, and Anche, of course, is a really good friend because, like, I thought she might live in Russia or, like, not even speak English. Like, I didn't know who or where she was because it was, like, this one record from 2002. It was 2008 at that point. I was like, well, she's, you know, clearly using German. Like, where the heck is she? <laughs> and I couldn't even really find her website for, at first because um, it's poemproducer.com and, like, AGF doesn't really bring anything up on Google and I finally wrote her an email and we started talking. And then in 2010, we'd talked for a while and I'd sent her some really bad demos and whatever. And she was very patient. And then she was finally like, I think you should do something serious and I will help you. And so she kind of co-produced or co-engineered my first record and ended up putting my voice through the same patch uh, that she used on Head Slash Bow. And you can hear that on my track, uh, Value System from Agora. But wow. um She's just she's just really sweet. So she did that for me. And then after that, we've worked together a couple other times. But I try and get her to do things that she doesn't normally do. Like she could she could make noises with me all day, but I think that it's fun to um, push her into other like just do things with her that that isn't just production or vocals so um she did the album cover for bahar and she's mastered a couple of my records and she tried to do some calligraphy for me so i try and i try and get her to do if we work together i try not to just you know like we could just make noises all day (laughs) i'd rather i'd rather have it be something a little more um curious what does her presence within your work bring out in you what does it accentuate Well, I think at that point, hearing that record, it was like what I was doing, but much more distilled. Right. Um, Like this idea that you could mingle voices in a very digital way and really push that idea. I also thought she kind of looked like my older sister. Like, I think we're kind of, you know, could be related or something. (laughs) Um, Having never seen the movie Chinatown, you know, she could be my sister and my daughter. I don't know. (laughs) 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 Um, I'm mostly kidding there, but you know, it's like, um, 
Yeah, I just really identify with Germans, I find. Like, I'm, I played a show with Thomas Brinkman a few years ago, and right now I'm really excited about Don't DJ, and obviously Stefan Mathieu, and I helped Bernard Gunther, like, relaunch um, Trent Oiseau a couple of years ago. Like, I rebirthed it with him, and so, yeah, a lot of my friends end up being German musicians for some reason, and I don't know what that's about, but she's just... <laughs> She's just great. I don't know. I don't know if it, there's a specific, you know, we want very different things out of out of our music. But I think aesthetically, sometimes the editing choices or the project, production choices that we make are very aligned. We just we go in very, very different directions with them. You know, she's always up for an email about Beyonce. <laughs> she's always up for an email about gender politics. You know, um, we were always talking about the new MIA record as soon as it comes out. Yeah, I don't know if there's a like specific yeah it's just kind of like i found kind of my kin with her it's never been about emulating her but it's about like this other person gets it in this very specific way because like i said there's not a lot of stuff out there like head slash bow you know and it's like you know i've talked to finesse but never really about hotel parallel because you know it's just i maybe don't feel that passionately about that record as i do about head slash bow it's like you know mm. It's it it's similar, but it's not quite as fierce, or it's it's not quite in that direction enough, or something. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, and like, there shouldn't be bootlegs of that record live because it was on Orthlorn Musork, and it was like a 500 copy release or something. Like, there should not be live recordings of that, but there are. Oh, so I have like three. Yeah, I have like three different concert recordings of her touring that record, which is insane. Like, there shouldn't even really be one, because it's it's such an obscure little release. Right. Um, <laughs> and also on Soulseek, someone managed to get a hold of the demos, like the demo wow. of the record, like six chunk files of like five tracks a piece and different outtakes and things. And so like that exists and I have that. And then like, obviously any interview she gave about the record that I could find, you know, so, so there was another one that I really researched pretty extensively to try and dig under the Genesis of it. And there's a surprising amount of material available uh, around that, um, that I, I think is crazy that it exists. Cause yeah, it's kind of such an obscure release. Yeah, I, I was so surprised to see that this is... So I've put it on my document, maybe I mistyped, but is it 2002 this record came out? Yeah, January 1st, 2002. That's I think they put it out in New Year's. Ballistic, <laughs> because it feels to me like uh, incredibly prescient in many respects. The <laughs> references to what, what I could decipher anyway, I'm not an expert, but what sounded like computer coding, but... Being yeah, she read the source code of web pages and she read her tech manuals. Yeah, the bit where she said something about was it every object should have a unique name. I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's a Max manual. Yeah, that's amazing. And when you listen to this record, is there a means by which you really listen to this record? Like, is there an, an ideal listening environment that you adopt in order to really get into the folds of this one? You know, at the height of listening to this record when I was younger, and it just before Actor was discovered, it was like early 2009, late 2008, I was in high school, I was in my last year of high school, and I can remember my iPod dying, and I was not able to listen to Head Slash Bow, uh. but I was sitting in the main lobby, and there was like a <laughs> from this fan overhead, and it was making the light rattle slightly and i was like 
oh, I get to listen to it after all. (laughs) That was fun. I remember that pretty distinctly. Um, Yeah, so it was usually like a headphones thing. um, And I remember it it can take me a while to warm to things. Like I can be really funny about things for a long time. And so I remember I downloaded like Joms music and Alvinoto or whatever the heck. Or Steinbruchel was one of the Uh, artists. Last Mm -hmm. FM was like, you sound like this. <laughs> and then head slash bow, I had like five or six tracks from it. You know, I just grabbed a handful to be like, is is this true? And I can remember like skimming them. And I was like, oh yeah, that's all right. And then I think I was like, well, that one sounds kind of interesting. And then I was like, wait, this does sound really interesting. Wait, what about this one? And so like, <laughs> it took me a couple of weeks, I remember, to get into this record. Um, and then I completely fell in love and downloaded the whole thing and i think it yeah it was one of those you know on the bus or like at study hall it was kind of like a, a quiet space environment that i was looking for but it was it was in my regular rotation a lot on headphones and then i i did have a couple of friends over who uh actually work for kit clayton uh, at cycling 74 and i didn't realize that at the time but he's the one that like mastered and released this record so it was like a funny little thing uh back when i had a huge speaker system at one of my houses um i remember putting head slash bow on for them and these 5.1 giant speakers and we just went into a trance and i had cut all the lights off and we just listened to it um did that with a couple of people um so so that was another really nice immersive experience with this record Derek, thank you so much for sharing your important records and also talking me through the process behind Alvia as well. This has been really nice. Thank you so much for your time on this, Jack. And once again, if people want to uh, check out what you're up to and find out your latest, where's the best place for them to, to do that? D-E-R-E-K-P-I-O-T-R dot com or like at as well. It's my handle for everything on social media. Great. Well, thanks once again. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>